morning, everyone. Uh, great to have you here, along with Tim. Uh, if you are a guest here, want to give you a special welcome. My name is Matt, and uh, it's my joy to be able to uh, come to you each week, or or when it's my turn to uh, to bring the word of God to you. Um, we are in Esther chapter 7 today, and we're going to get into some deep waters in terms of uh, the nature of God and uh, his response to the wrongdoings of humanity. So I want to begin with a word of prayer that God would uh, prepare our hearts and uh, that we would, um, uh, this would be a really fruitful time. So join with me if you would. Lord God, we are thankful for your word. Uh, thankful, God, that uh, even in a story from the Old Testament, Lord, there is so much here that is for our benefit. God, I pray that we would indeed be blessed through this time. I pray, Lord, as we think deeply about your nature uh, in the next few minutes, as we um, un unfold the words that you've given to us and see how they apply to our lives, Lord, I, I pray that we would have open hearts and minds. I pray for everyone watching, everyone tuning in. Uh, Lord, whether we are a follower of you or not, God, I pray that you would speak to us and that we would hear. And I pray, Lord, you would help me in spite of my own sin to be uh, effective, to be truthful and to be bold, and uh, I pray for your blessing on us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Esther chapter 7, so we're more than halfway through the story. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but I've noticed that in the last couple of chapters, things have slowed down considerably. If you think about chapters 1 and 2, I mean, we were jumping through years in the empire of Persia, and kind of things were going really quickly, but in the last couple of chapters, things have really slowed down. It feels as if we are moving almost minute by minute through the events of the story. In fact, our chapter today dovetails exactly with what happened last week in chapter 6. Uh, if you remember, uh, Haman's plot to murder Mordecai failed miserably. Uh, the king, in fact, made him honor Mordecai publicly <clears throat> in, instead, which was horrible for Haman. Uh, he just had time to run home and to whine to his wife, complain about what had happened, and then the king's eunuchs came in and they take him right away to the next feast. Remember, Esther had planned two feasts. Uh, all of this leading up to her asking the king to spare the lives of the Jewish people. And you may be thinking, I remember thinking a number of times uh, when I read this story, why did it take Esther so long to ask the king this one thing, especially since... When she goes to the king initially, he asks her right away, what can I do for you? What do you want, uh, my queen? And she then says, well, I want you to come to a feast and then to another feast. And then she's going to ask him. And, and you kind of wonder, like, why are you taking so long, Esther? Why not just ask him if, he's, if he wants to know? Well, we should remember that uh, this king is a very volatile king. In fact, there's a, a story that I, I found in my study this week uh, about a time, uh, this is recorded by Herodotus, so a Greek historian, telling about a time when King Ahasuerus, uh, one of his officials, came to him and asked him if, if he could spare his eldest son from military service. So Persian law, all of the young men had to serve in the military. Uh, this was an official of the king. He had five sons. So he had a lot of you know, sons that were going to be serving in the army. And this official had given money to support the war efforts against Greece. So he came and thought, you know, maybe the king would be, would be kind, would, would spare my eldest son. He wouldn't have to go off to war. Here's what King Hashuerus did. Here's his response. He was so angry that his official would even ask him such a thing. He had his eldest son cut in two and he put him on a field and he had his army battalions pass in between the pieces of his son as just a way of saying to everyone in the empire, look, don't even think about asking me of such a thing. How could you not do your duty to the empire? 
this is the kind of man that Esther is coming to to ask for, for grace, for leniency in this decree that he sent out. So you can understand why she's being very careful about how she asks this. She wants to avoid this kind of explosive, vindictive anger. And what we see now is she actually comes to ask him, really Esther puts on what I think we describe as a masterclass in persuasion. So here's how it begins. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So right away we see here, um, this is a pretty good play by Esther. She has the king engaged in his very favorite hobby, which is feasting. He loves to feast. And so uh, this is the second day of the feast. He's drinking wine. He's in a good mood. He said to her what he always says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, which isn't literal. It just means, you know, I'm, I'm happy to give you whatever you want. And now we get down to the actual request. What we're going to do is go line by line just to see how she crafts this request to the king. So this is uh, verses three and four. Uh, she begins this way. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. So right there, she personalizes her request. If I have found favor in your sight, she says, and if it pleases you. She wants to frame this in terms of this is, this is about your pleasure, O king. Next, she says, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Now the subtle shift here, she actually asks for two things. She asks for, the, for her life and for the life of her people. And she does this wisely because we've seen the king doesn't care that much about his people, but he does seem to care about her. So he's kind of putting the two things together. Next, she says, for we have been sold. This is the big issue. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now the genius here is that she makes it seem like she's uncovering another plot of the, uh, against the king. That's happened before in the story. It seems here like someone has sold the king's property, which is her and, and these people. She's quoting directly from the decree of death about the Jews. I don't think the king probably realized that that's what she was talking about. But Haman, who's in the room, you would, you would imagine his ears would perk up. He realizes what this is really about. And then finally, Esther, uh, she finishes with an absolutely brilliant move. Here's what she says, finally. She says, If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now the genius here is that she makes this all about him. What she's saying is, look, if this was just slavery, if this was just about me and my people being sold into slavery, I wouldn't bother you. I mean, of course, we're in the empire. Everyone is a slave. We have to do our duty. That's not what this is about, O king. This is about loss that you are suffering. This is about, about you, O king. And, and if it's a loss to the king, then I definitely am going to speak up. You can see he, she's really speaking his language. We know that King Hashuerus is a petty man. He's a very selfish man. And so she's speaking in these terms to him. She's framing it in a way that he would really care about this and is very successful. Look, look at his response, verses five and six. Then King Hashuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Which tees it up perfectly for Esther to say, uh, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now notice there, she doesn't say uh, an enemy of the Jews or my enemy. She just says an enemy. She's framing it like Haman is your enemy, O king. 
And the sequence ends with the mighty Haman cowering beneath the king and the queen of Persia. Esther has played things perfectly. And now she just waits to see what will happen. What, how will the king respond? How will he deal with this? So this is verse 7 and 8. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Now, a couple things here. It's not, it's not totally clear why the king left the room. Um, we can guess that probably he was processing things. Right? He's probably trying to figure out, you know, how can, I, how can I go back against a decree that I have made without seeming foolish? Uh, so he's probably trying to figure this out while uh, Haman, he literally falls before Esther, which was a, a, really a word from his wife. If you remember, she said, you're going to fall before the Jewish people. He does that. But when the king comes back in, he thinks that Haman is trying to assault Queen Esther, which I think we'd agree is a bit of a stretch. I mean, I'm not sure that we would really think that Haman would try to assault Esther there on the couch. But a couple things... Um, uh, is important for us to know. There was a law in Persia that said that no man could come within seven steps of the queen or any of the king's concubines. So very clearly here, uh, Haman is breaking the law. Plus, the king was looking for a way to resolve this situation. So accusing Haman of a crime actually is a very neat way to, to tie a bow on this. Once he says that, uh, everything moves very quickly. Here's how this, this ends. Verse 9 and 10. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So that, that is the end of Haman. And what an end it is. I mean, I think we'd agree this is a dramatic ending, a very satisfying ending. But more than just being satisfying, there's, there's quite a bit we can learn here about uh, the nature of God and about our nature of human beings and how we relate to him in our wrongdoing. So this is what we're going to do. The, the rest of our time, uh, we're going to look at three lessons that we can learn from the end of Haman. And here's the first one. We see that great reversals are always part of God's plan. Great reversals are always part of God's plan. Uh, there is something, I mean, very satisfying about this ending. I think we'd, we'd all agree. Uh, Haman doesn't just fail. He doesn't just die. He is humiliated by his own instrument of death. His own plans kind of come back on his own head. We call this poetic justice. And we love poetic justice. Uh, we love it in, in books and movies and even in real life when horrible people, when bad things happen to them. Um, more to the point, when something that they'd been planning comes back and ends up kind of uh, meeting their end, that's, I mean, we love that. That's very satisfying. Um, I know a lot of you, uh, you know, one of the secondary benefits of tuning in each Sunday are like some podcast and movie picks. So here's one for you. Um, the Emperor's New Groove. This is a forgotten masterpiece uh, by Disney. It's about an emperor who gets changed into a llama, full of zaniness and fun. Uh, what I want you to notice in the picture there is that purple, uh, scraggly-looking woman uh, to the left. 
Uh, that's Isma. She is the villain. And uh, I don't want to spoil the ending, but uh, here's exactly what happens to her at the end. Um, she, uh, is, she takes one of the potions that she has made to kill the emperor. She takes it herself and she turns into this kitten. And she's cute and adorable. And then she gets crushed uh, by her henchmen. It's very satisfying. I totally recommend uh, watching it. And it's an example of poetic justice. We love that. We love it when people get kind of what they deserve in the end. And we see that here in this story, but here's what I really want us to see. More than just being a great ending to an evil villain, what we see here is an essential component to God's ultimate plans for the entire universe. See, there will always be dramatic reversals for the wicked of the world in God's universe. And it's important that we see this as an example of this and as a, a principle throughout scripture because, because it's, a lot of times it's hard to believe that this is actually true. I mean, if we think of um, those who are doing wicked in the world, those who are oppressing others, those who are using their power for evil, those who are being vindictive and corrupted, very often it seems like they are succeeding. But what we see in scripture is that while there are seasons where evil seems to be winning, those seasons do not last forever. The, the, the wicked and proud, they always fall. And more than just fall, very often they are undone by their own wicked ways. And God makes this clear uh, in a number of places in scripture where he shows how, how the evil kind of undermined themselves. Here's one really uh, clear and poetic picture of this. This is from Psalm, chap, uh, Psalm 7, verses 14 to 16. God says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. We also see this tied specifically to God's character. Uh, this comes from uh, a song that Mary sings after she finds out she's pregnant with the Messiah. She's, she's exalting God. Here's what she says uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 51. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So you notice there the reversal. Those who are humble, those who are lowly, they are lifted up in God's kingdom. But the proud, the mighty, those who are full of themselves, they are brought low. We see this over and over again throughout the Bible, but it all culminates, of course, in the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, by all appearances, evil seemed to have won. God's Messiah was killed, nailed to the cross. His followers were scattered. Satan was rejoicing. But in fact, on the cross, evil is actually defeated by its own designs. Death is put to death through Jesus' death on the cross. Sin is vanquished on the cross because Jesus took our sin upon himself. And Satan is defeated because Jesus went along with Satan's plans. Here's a quote from St. Augustine, kind of early church father that I think just explains this really well. He says it this way, The devil was defeated by his own victorious achievement. The devil was exultant when Christ died, and by that very death of Christ was the devil conquered. It's as though he took the bait in a mousetrap. The mousetrap for the devil was the cross, for the Lord. The bait he would be caught by would be the death of the Lord. And our Lord Jesus Christ rose again. Where now is the death that hung on the cross? 
See, what we see very clearly in Scripture is that evil never triumphs in the end. If evil could not win on the cross, it will never win. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean that we should see the world and our own lives and everything in it with the understanding that there will be these dramatic, these great reversals of fortune? The low will be lifted up. The, the proud and the mighty will be brought low. Well, it means a couple things. It means that we can be sure that, that we can trust God with the evildoers, those who are wronging us. We can know that in the end, they will be held to account. It means that we don't have to pursue vengeance. We can actually show grace and be forgiving to the people in our lives because we don't have to imagine that people are going to get away with anything. But I think the thing that maybe is, is most uh, helpful or convicting, should be convicting for us, is recognizing that every time we disobey God, we are actually setting ourselves up for a fall. I mean, every time that, that we turn our backs on God, go our own way, our sin at that moment is tempting us to think that the, the good, the pleasure, whatever it is that we are involved in, that's wrong, and we know it's wrong, yet we're going in that direction. The lie is that that's going to turn into lasting joy, but what we see here is that it never does. That, that if we are engaged in sin in our lives, we're digging a pit, this big chasm next to us, and eventually we're going to fall in. Eventually our, our life is going to come crashing down around us. It always happens. There was a very heartbreaking example of this in the last few weeks. I'm not sure if you know the name Ravi Zacharias, but up to, up to a month ago, he was a, a well-known and well-respected Christian man. Uh, a leader in the church, a great apologist, great evangelist. I heard him speak a number of times. So helpful in understanding the things of God. He died earlier this year. And at that time, he was honored for all of his work. He has a, a ministry that continued to, to preach the gospel, to help people understand the things of God. And then it came out that he was really living a double life. There were accusations of sexual misconduct and investigation revealed that they were legitimate that sadly he had abused many women. He was, he was completely in sin and yet had, had lived a life pretending that he wasn't. See, what we need to see from scripture and from all around us is that a life like that will always be revealed for what it is. That, that even after death, this, this ministry that he built now is coming crashing down. The people in his life are having to pick up the pieces, the women that he's wronged or having to deal with all of the sin that's been done against him. What we should see is that this is always the case. That the, the things that we prop up in our own sin, and our own strength, the things that we do for our own glory, for our own sinful pleasure, they're always going to come crashing down around us. That we can never avoid it. And the thing that we should be thinking in, in looking at what happens to Haman is, where am I digging a pit in my own life? Where am I believing the lie that, that, that that area of my life that is in darkness, that is a sin that no one knows about is going to stay that way and that somehow I'm going to be able to avoid the fallout that comes from sin? What we should see is again and again and again, it never happens. And at the end, even if we do make it to the end, like Ravi did, thinking that, that no one know the truth, he still had to stand before Jesus. And our second point makes that prospect very, very scary for us. Because our second point in looking at Haman is this. Wrongdoers 
are rightly terrified before God. Terrified before God. I'm getting this from verse six. Verse six, Esther says, pointing probably at Haman, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. See, this is a moment, the moment for Haman. All of a sudden, he sees the danger that he is in with absolute clarity. And this is not something he was able to see before. Because before in his life, he always had control and power and wealth. He never really felt like he was in danger. But now all of that falls away. He sees that his life is now in the hands of a very angry king. And there's very little that he can do about it. He's right to be afraid. And his terror should serve as a picture for us of the danger that we are all in when we stand in our sin before a holy God. And unlike King Hashuerus, God is not petty or vindictive or impulsive. He is holy, which means that he sees things perfectly and he judges rightly and that he will always give a just consequence for our sin. We see this time and again through scripture. Here it is most clearly. Romans 3.23 says simply, the wages of sin is death. He's making very clear that we know that if we are engaged in sin, that at the end of the day, we will pay for that. And the just payment is death. But God doesn't just tell us that. He gives us pictures of it. This story, within a story, this, this scene for Haman, this is a picture of the righteous wrath of God against a wrongdoer. But there's other times where it's more explicitly tied to God himself. Uh, in Exodus, for example, Exodus 32, this is right after God has saved his people, brought them out of slavery from Egypt. He goes up, um, sends Moses up a mountain. He's giving them the law that's going to bless them. But during that time, the people down below are getting impatient, fed up, and so they build an idol. And now look at the Lord's response. The Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. You notice the same word there, wrath, anger. Just like King Ahasuerus. In verse seven, says the king rose in his wrath that he intended harm towards Haman for his wrongdoing. Now I say just like King Ahasuerus, but it's not just like him. Because King Ahasuerus is, is petty and self-absorbed, but God, God is holy. God is pure. And so his anger towards sin is absolutely righteous. He means to consume all sin and bring justice and, and purify his people. What we see in the Bible over and over again through these pictures and through this, this very clear teaching from the Bible is that we should never take sin lightly. You know, I think if we're honest, we know that's exactly what we do. We do it over and over again. I mean, Haman, Haman here is, is rightly seen as a warning for what happens when we do take sin lightly, when we get caught up in other things in our life that seem so much more important. I mean, think about what Haman thought was important. Remember the last few chapters? What was he consumed with? He was consumed with this guy, Mordecai, who wasn't honoring him. In fact, look at Haman's wrath uh, this is chapter 5, verse 9. It says that he would filled with wrath against Mordecai for disrespecting him. That's what was bugging him. If you were to say to, to Haman, hey, how's, how are things going, Haman? How's your life? He would have been like, pretty good, but here's the thing that's really bugging me. This is the thing that is a real problem in my life, that not everyone in the palace is honoring me the way that I should be honored. See, the things, the, 
that occupied his, his mind were so trivial. When you see in the big scheme of things, they were so unable to bring him the joy and the peace that he needed. This is the tragic error of humanity that most of us are consumed with problems that won't matter on the day of judgment. Most of us, most of us are afraid of things that frankly don't endanger our soul. Most of us have a very narrow view of our existence. We tend to be consumed with the things that are happening today, tomorrow, 10 years from now. But the Bible, the Bible constantly pushes us to consider our eternal good. Like, like big picture, what's good for us? Big picture, what is going to bring us joy and security and peace? Big picture, are there any threats in our life? The Bible constantly pushes us to think about what would happen if we stand before the Lord and we have no peace with him because of our sin. What it, what it pushes us to realize is that we have much bigger problems in our life. If we have no answer for our sin. In fact, here's how he, Jesus says it in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, for Haman, Haman was a big shot for years, wealthy beyond anything that we can imagine. Second most powerful person in the kingdom. If anyone had reason for security and happiness and joy, it was Haman. But what we see here is that there was a day, an important day where none of that mattered. In the end, he was terrified before the king because of his wrongdoing. And he was killed in his own front yard. And this is the thing that we should take away from this picture. That on our own, we all should be terrified because of the wrath of God against sin. A 50 cubit high gallows is nothing compared to the wrath of God. Now, now I, I think we need to realize that this doctrine of the wrath of God is something that um, many people in the church don't want us to talk about that much, don't feel comfortable talking about very much. I remember talking with a, with a pastor, I was sitting at some, I don't know, pastor's meeting conference, and uh, we were talking about the gospel, and he was saying, you know, I think we've, we've emphasized the judgment of God too much. He was saying, scare tactics, they don't, really, they don't really bring any genuine heart change. And I would say it is, it is definitely true in church history that there have been times when people sadly have been left with this, this burden of sin, feeling the judgment of God and feeling no escape from it. But the problem there is not that the church was talking about the judgment of God. The problem is that the grace of God was not being talked about enough. You, you need both. You need to begin with a clear understanding of the wrath of God, his anger towards sin. Human beings should be rightly terrified of what it would mean to stand before a holy God. I mean, listen, I don't know all of the, how exactly Rabbi Zacharias got from being a man who knows the gospel so well to be able to live a, a double life, being mired in sin, but I know one thing for sure. He was not terrified in the way that he should have been to stand before Jesus at the end of his life. When we think that way, it shapes what's really important for us, what hope we really have. And think about it. If, if ever there is a clear and present danger in our world, don't, don't we highlight it rather than downplaying it? Especially if it's something that's difficult to see. This week I was studying, um, working with Silas on his science, and uh, we're studying the human body, he is, and one of the, you know, 
topics is the respiratory system. And so they have this picture in the textbook of these two lungs. You, you probably know this picture. One of them is a healthy lung. The other one is a smoker's lung. The smoker's lung looks absolutely disgusting. Black, all stuffed, crusty. I mean, it's horrible. And I, and I re reminded me that on cigarette packages, they have these kinds of pictures now. Um, on the cigarette pack that you're about to buy, it shows you a picture of someone's lung, a smoker's lung, shows you a picture of people with holes in their throats, mouth cancer, all of these horrible, disgusting things. The whole point is that they want to terrify, especially the young people, buying the cigarettes and saying, look, you can't tell right now, but this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to die from this. It's going to be horrible. That's a kindness that we are doing. Be even kinder not to sell cigarettes, but that's a whole other issue. The point is that when there's danger... We try to make very, very clear what the danger is so that people will be able to respond correctly. The word of God, because God loves us, wants for us to be very, very clear about the wrath of God. That we would wrestle with it, that we'd feel convicted by it. But it doesn't leave us with that wrestle. The bad news of sin is always just a precursor to the good news of the gospel. The, the, the kindness, the grace of God, the overabundant kindness of God. And we see this too throughout scripture. Here's, here's one verse, and then we'll get to our third point. Romans eleven twenty two, Paul says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, by that he means sinned, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, meaning that you have faith. He's pointing here to the, to the cross of Jesus, to where our hope lies, to what we truly believe. And this is our third point. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us. He absorbed the wrath of God for us. And we actually see a little glimmer of this in our text as well. Verse 10. It says, So they hanged Haman on the gallows. They, he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So once justice is served, once Haman is, is, is dead, the king's anger dissolves because the wrongdoer has been sufficiently punished. That's really the essence of justice. And, and human beings, we love justice. I mean, think about a, a little kid on the playground when someone's bugging him and then he calls the new hour supervisor over and tells him, look, Jimmy's bugging me and the new hour supervisor is getting mad at Jimmy. That first kid, what's on his face? Big smile. This is, this is the best. He's, get, he's getting it. He's getting justice. I love it. It's the same thing for adults. We love our day in court. Someone took advantage of us. Someone wronged us. We, what do we say? We'll see you in court. And in court, if we plead our case and the judge you know, rules in our favor, big smile. Because we love justice. We love people getting what they deserve. But, but that's not all we love. I mean, we're not totally hard-hearted. There are times, are there not, when we feel compassion for those who have wronged us. There are times on the playground when, when the kid says, it's fine, it's, it's not a big deal, it's okay, Jimmy's my friend. There are times when we say to the police, I don't want to press charges. I, I, don't, I don't want to pursue justice. Why do we do that? Well, because we want to give people a second chance. Because we don't want them to suffer for their wrongs. Because even though we love justice, we also love people. And of course, God, God loves people even more than we do. God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of love. He loves people. He loves the people that he has made. But here's the tricky part for God. The tricky part is that God cannot just set aside his desire for justice. 
You can't just say, well, we just won't pursue justice there. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to press charges because God is, God is judge over the entire universe. And as a judge, any good judge can't just look at someone, a convicted criminal in front of them and just say, we're going to wipe the slate. We're not going to worry about that. No sentencing. You can't do that because then justice would not reign in our community. And if God did that, this universe would not be a universe of justice. God is bound by justice because he is the essence of justice. But listen, he's also compelled by love because he's the essence of love. And for a long time, throughout the Old Testament, human beings, humanity was caught in the middle. And we weren't sure how this was going to get resolved. We were guilty of sin, deserving of death, deserving of the wrath of God to be poured out on us, and yet also deeply loved by God. We could see that God loves us, that he was intervening. And the big question was, how could, how could this be, both be satisfied? How could God be both just and loving? And this is the wonder of the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus stepped in and took our place. That on the cross, he endured the full wrath of God on our behalf because Jesus took on all of our sin, became sin, even though he was perfect and sinless. And in that moment, there was the great reversal, the greatest reversal, that the one who was sinless endured all of the consequences and wrath of our sin so that we could be set free, so that we would experience the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God, the justice of God held up, and yet we, his people, saved. There's a word in the Bible that encapsulates this fully, this idea of Jesus bearing our wrath um, in our place. Uh, it's a word that we don't use that much because it's kind of a technical, theological word, but it's one that we should know because it's really the linchpin of our faith, and the word is propitiation. Propitiation. I'm going to use it in a sentence from our, from our story. Um, here's the sentence. The, the anger of King Ahasuerus was propitiated when Haman was hanged on the gallows, meaning that all of his anger and wrath was spent, was satisfied. Haman absorbed all of that wrath when he was punished. Here's a couple sentences from the Bible, a few verses that also contain the word. Romans 3, 23 and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, the word there means the same thing. Someone absorbed the wrath of God. The grace of God is that it wasn't us. Jesus propitiated himself in our place. He revealed both God's justice, but also his love. This is the good news of the Christian faith. See, the whole Bible is about God, is about his love for us. Even these stories in the Old Testament. I mean, this, this moment in this story, Haman's death, is a high point in the book itself of Esther. Finally, the villain has been defeated. The king's anger is abated. Our desire for justice is satisfied. All that is true. All that actually happened in history. But let us not miss the deeper meaning behind it. Where all of this is pointing to. That there will be a day for us, just like there was for Haman, when all of our wrongs are laid bare. All of our sin is exposed. Not before a corrupt and, and petty king, just an emperor of Persia, but before a perfect God 
the God of the entire universe who sees everything clearly, who judges purely. And in that moment, we should be rightly terrified unless, unless we are able to plead the cross of Jesus. Unless we're able to say, all, all has been paid for. Jesus on the cross, he absorbed every ounce of wrath. And I plead him, his name is my salvation. See, we don't need to talk less about the wrath of God. Because when we really understand it, it it's so helpful for us. It, it should bring about a real terror in our mind and our heart. If we, if we are digging a pit in our lives, and I hope for some of us today, this is a day of, of clarity. When we realize, look, there's an area of darkness where we have thought that we can just keep it hidden, we can keep it you know, off to the side that no one in our lives will know about it, and that we'll deal with the consequences of it later. What we should see is we do not want to get to that day when that sin is revealed and we have not confessed it before Christ. Today is the day when we can receive the forgiveness and the love and the grace of God. And the way to do that is through repentance. Repentance means getting on our knees and saying, Lord, you, here's the sin that you see clearly that I need to confess. But it also very often means confessing to the people in our life so that we can be accountable, so that we can glorify God and say, my, my sins are forgiven. It's, it's to Jesus that I look for help. And then repentance means actually turning. We don't just say sorry. We turn. We walk in the other direction. We walk towards Jesus. All that happens if the wrath of God is clear in our mind and in our heart. If the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see the truth. But the other great thing about having this very clear in our mind is that when we see the wrath of God clearly, it increases our capacity to glorify God. Even for those of us who've been redeemed, who are walking in righteousness, understanding the depth of God's anger towards sin and the magnitude of God's love, it means that we can glorify God all the more. And so I want to end by just reading a, a short quote from John Piper. This is from our Lent guide. If you were working through it this week, you would have known that on Wednesday, the very first day, in the 50 reasons why Jesus came to die, the very first reason was he came to absorb the wrath of God. And so here's how uh, Piper ends uh, that section. He says this, Let us not trifle with God or trivialize his love. We will never stand in awe of being loved by God until we reckon with the seriousness of our sin and the justice of his wrath against us. Praise God that Jesus propitiated himself for us. Praise God that he is so intent on dealing justly with sin, on reversing the fortunes of evil and bringing it low. Praise God that we don't have to endure it ourselves. I pray for all of us that we would have that hope, that we would turn from our sin and that we would be able to honor and glorify him completely in our lives. Let me pray for us to that end. Lord Jesus, I do pray for us. I do pray for us as a church and for any guests watching, Lord, I pray that we would have absolute clarity about your wrath. I thank you for this picture, this, this really small picture of anger towards someone who did something wrong in the time of Esther. I thank you because it reminds us Lord God, of, of your purity, of your holiness. And I hope, Lord Jesus, for everyone listening, that it convicts us of those areas where we have gone astray. I pray that we would not try to keep things hidden. Lord, that we would not be at peace in the darkness of sin, but God, that we would bring things to light, no matter, light, no matter how difficult it is. 
no matter how much it will cost us, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see that it is always to our benefit to come clean, to confess, and to make things right with you through the cross of Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that many would do that today, that you would work in our hearts. Give us the the courage and the boldness and the conviction to speak those, those words of repentance. But also, Lord, I pray that we would glorify you all the more because of the depth of your love for us, because of of how much you love us and the fact that no matter how much we sin, your grace abounds all the more. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be truly glorified in us today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.